Hi, my name is Faye Oluwodo. I'm the uh, author of the Villager, How Africans Consume Brands. And I'm also CEO of Insight Publicis, uh, the leading creative agency in Nigeria. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Faye. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. And uh, we're, doing, we're doing it out in the beautiful sunshine of Johannesburg. The weather's fine. Yeah, I think you brought some... Uh, some Niger blessings with you. <laughs> it, uh, I hope so. It, was, it didn't get to Cape Town, though. They still don't have water there. It's horrible. Yeah, you're going to need to sort them out as well. <laughs> so true. Well, listen, um, I was thinking about this book and, and um, why it resonated with me. And I'll tell you what happened. I read it around about the time, if not the same week as the week I watched the Black Panther movie. And that movie left me feeling really warm inside and affirmed to a large degree. And I would go as far as saying your book left me feeling the same. My question to you is why do you think that is? I'm a Zimbabwean. You're from Nigeria. Why do you think that was? I I think uh, that was a pleasant coincidence, by the way, because... The book also came out on, I was published on Amazon the same day that Black Panther was, was, was released, uh, which was pure coincidence because, um, it, it was released if, about a week earlier than, than, than the publisher plan. I, I think we're at a time where because of globalization, the world has gotten really small. And because the world has gotten really small, technology enables us to sort of mimic each other. We can share things and do what someone else in another part of the world is doing. Uh, but in the midst of that, a lot of people are asking themselves, who am I really? How do I differentiate myself? If I wear the same shirt, I wear the same kind of jeans and use the same kind of laptop as, as a white guy somewhere in, in Ohio, what, what makes me different? Uh, uh, then I think it's, it's that, it's that underlying, uh, search for national and cultural identity that that would have made such a coincidence possible between my book and and the black panther movie i think look i don't know if anybody else read it nearly as fast as i did (laughs) um but what's the most common response you're getting from africans who have read the book and what's your favorite response (laughs) oh i think the most common response i've i've gotten is people reading it from across africa and saying wow this this helped me to explain everything. Or uh, sometimes it's put as, this reminds me of, of how I grew up, or my own life story and, and all of that. Uh, and I think I think the most favorite response I got uh, was from Kelly, the, the host of uh, Heavy Chef, uh, where she basically said, this is so true about me growing up. And why it's my favorite response uh, is because of who gave the response. Kelly is, is, a, is a white South African who grew up in, among black, rural South African. And she didn't know that she was white until she was a teenager. So she speaks, she speaks Kosa very well, uh, as she thinks in Kosa, I presume, and all of that. And so hearing that from someone like that is so, it was so powerful uh, for me. Let's talk about some of the assertions you make in the book. Um, let's start with perhaps the more audacious one, but perhaps the most necessary one in, in creating a, a backdrop for the entire book, right? Um, this idea that you consider Nigeria as an excellent case study in trying to understand 
corporate African identity, right? And I and I know having read the book that you don't mean to paint us all with one brush or or sort of muscle us into uh <laughs> basically or turning the whole continent into Nigerian citizens. But talk me through your thinking around using that as a frame for everything else you, you started to say in the book. Yeah. So um the use of Nigeria was was kind of I mean when I when I started writing the book and thinking about it the 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 first thing that came to mind was to take the very academic route which would be commission a huge research across africa in different countries and all of that uh but as i thought about it i I asked myself you know will i find out something different uh if i really did that from country to country given my experience so far and then i went back to my training as a researcher which basically taught me that if if you want to uh make generalizations about about uh, about a large population you find a sample of that population that has enough characteristics within it to represent the total and so i looked and said apart from the fact that the coincidence i might say in this case that i'm a nigerian but if you look across the continent the one country that has enough uh, characteristics to represent the rest of the continent is actually Nigeria. You look at you look at the cultural diversity in that country. There are over two hundred and fifty tribes in that country alone. Out of the one thousand five hundred languages spoken in Africa, five hundred and twenty of those are spoken in Nigeria. It has is perhaps the country that has the largest what I call a ethno-linguistic density in the world. There is no other country in the world that has that many languages spoken. Even China, they don't have that many uh, languages spoken there. Uh, and then if you look at how the cultures are sometimes so defined and distinct uh, uh, that it's even difficult for intercultural marriages sometimes uh, and all of that, you see that you see that it has. It's like you have multiple countries in one uh, uh, in a way. So that was why I said, you know what. Let me use Nigeria as a primary, almost like a mosaic, from which I can then uh, draw draw a picture of how I saw African African consumers. That reasoning is definitely sound, um, and I, I know a lot of Africans are going. We don't mind being Nigerian. Niger cool. Niger cool right now. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I hope that's true. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it was funny. I was uh, I was at uh, I was at a hotel in Cape Town. A few days ago, and they were playing Nigerian music. And what made me laugh uh, was it was King Sonyadi, and and you know he sings purely in Yoruba. And like, who, does anyone actually understand what this guy is saying? No, but it feels good, brother. Yeah, they, they, everyone looked happy. I'm like, okay, it's working. It's working. It's working. Yeah, it's working. Yeah. So you've alluded to the, this uh, this idea of globalization and um, a very popular notion within sort of brand management and uh, you know product development, um, this idea of a global marketplace, the the potential for building global brands. Um, and you take this idea on in your book and and identify some of the reasons why coming to Africa to do business with that mindset is problematic. You have obviously had to hold the hands of many brands in the in the in the line of work that you do. Give me a sense of one of the most common misconceptions, the most common counterproductive attitudes, um, some of your clients perhaps, or some, some of these things that you've observed within the marketplace of people coming to Africa with the specific express purpose of doing business here. 
I think it's it's the the most common that I've seen is this belief that uh, all consumers are aspirational in the same way, and that in other words, that our aspirations are the same. That that a a thirty year old guy somewhere in the streets of London or the US has the same aspirations in life as a 30-year-old guy in the streets of Johannesburg or Lagos. And so you, you, you one often find clients that says, we want to target young people and young people are aspirational. So give us some aspirational campaigns or some aspirational stuff. And then they want the, the, the nature or the form that the aspiration takes to look exactly like that in the West. And it becomes a difficult conversation when you try to convince them uh, uh, that, this yes, they're aspirational, but that's that's not the kind of aspiration that that these guys really have. It's it's very different, you know, uh, and that's that's the most common I've I've seen. And then you talk about this idea of lenses that we all use to sort of make sense of our world. And I mean, you mentioned three. I don't want to give away too much of your book. People must go and read it. We wouldn't do it justice just talking about it. But um, you mentioned three. I won't even list what they are. I want you to pick one of the ones you consider most crucial to uh, understanding the African consumer, which you talk about as being a villager, another, another sort of concept uh, um, that I'd like us to unpack a little later on. So, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting you talk about lenses. I, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm a bit fascinated by the idea. Uh, and, and you're wearing lenses, by the way. So it's a good reference. Eh? Which I've worn since I was in the third grade. <laughs> so, so I can imagine. You know, you know, the thing with lenses is you don't see them when you're wearing them. You, you notice what they do for you in terms of, in terms of what you see and all of that. And, and you know, my, the, the entire book, the offering of the entire book is actually to give a lens by which people, businesses can see Africans correctly. You know, and if you if if you don't have that lens, you don't see correctly. Just an experience, I'm sure that you're quite familiar with, and, and you're wondering what's wrong until someone gives you the right lens, and suddenly you see clearly. You know, uh, and I think for me, um, the 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 favorite, my favorite lens is 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 the cultural lens. You see, because it's it's the most invisible because it's the one that we've done. There's the least body of work on on culture compared to commercial lenses. Uh, uh, or marketing lenses and all of that. There's enough. There's enough body of work to help you with that. Uh, but if you talk about culture, it impacts consumption, buying behavior, and so on and so forth. It's still a mystery to most people. Uh, and I think there's a laziness to to how we we look at culture because it's so easy for us to assume uh, uh, that that culture is the same everywhere. And you know, the moment you put on the lens, the right lens. You suddenly begin to notice things. I remember uh, uh, some four or five years ago, around the time I started uh, speaking about this in diff- on different platforms, coming to South Africa and I went to Cape Town and Joburg, and I suddenly noticed that people in Joburg and people in Cape Town are very different. Now, prior to that particular visit, I used to think all South Africans are the same. But because I'd had a cultural lens, I mean, what one of my professors then just talked about one of the things we should notice. And suddenly I saw, oh, these guys are different. One of them is warmer than the other and all of that, that sort of thing. Um, and, and it makes, that sort of thing makes, it makes a big, big, big difference having the right kind of lens to, to view a culture, uh, to view a people rather. It's, it's very key. And now, I mean, the broader premise of this book is that, the African is a villager. 
<laughs> which is which is a lens you introduce, you know, ba- basically throughout this book. And I found this fascinating. I'll share a little bit about myself just to set this up. My wife and I are both second generation professionals and we don't own a car in Johannesburg. We we Uber everywhere. We see sometimes five countries a year. My family moved out of the township probably about three years before I was born. So I'm not only a born free in Zimbabwe who never has to, who's never had to live in a township or a, a, an actual village. Yet still, I feel this is about me. <laughs> I mean, I'm, help me, help me out here. Like, how did you, how did you, how does that, how did you get that right in terms of like developing this argument or this lens or this proposition? Uh, I, I'll give you, I'll give you another story of another gentleman. I met him on on LinkedIn. He watched um, there's a video of the talk that I when I delivered in the UK. He watched that and then he reached out to me on LinkedIn. And he is a is a second generation Ghanaian British. You know his parents left Ghana when when they were young, got married in the UK and then had him in the so he's grown in the he's grown up in the UK all his life. He's married now with kids and and he listens to the talk, listens to the framework and he says, "Oh my God, I am like this." He speaks with a British accent to tell you how strong. And so, he, you know, he sends me his number. We, 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 we call each other on the phone and he's like, you, you were describing me, but I didn't grow up in Ghana. And, and I'm like that. So, you see, what, what, what you're describing is what, is what, what I say in the book that, that there's something called slow culture and that the, the core of who we are, our attitudes, our belief systems, it takes generations to shift. And the reason it takes generations to shift is because there are what I call cultural pillars or anchors that ensure that those cultural ways of living actually abides regardless of where we are. And I argue that the, the, the African consumer does leave the townships or the village or the rural area, comes to the city to advance themselves. But when they do, they do that carrying the dreams of the rural area and all of that. And in order not to lose their identity in the, in the city. The only way they do that is they hold on to some of the strong values uh, of, 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 of the rural areas or the village they come from. And you see, they will pass those values along to their next generation, even if the next generation never, uh, never went back. And that's why I say the, the African consumer is a villager, but it's not, it's not the, the villager is not a physical place. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mental construct, which, which I articulated as it components in the book. Well, it's, it's just so, in my, in my place, for instance, uh, there's a way you're expected to greet your elders. Uh, we sort of, um, we prostrate in my side of the country and, and all of that. And you see, that is not going to change with my own children because when my father comes to visit, they have to greet him that way because he doesn't understand all this modern living and all of that. You prostrate to greet your elders. Gentlemen, you prostrate to greet me. Now, they will, they will do that to him. When I become older and become grandfathers to their children, their children have to greet me prostrated. So you find out that years down the line, we've got generations of Africans who are, can I say, Wakanda-like, using technology and all of that. But you find that culture deeply rooted there. And I think to come back to your earlier question, I've seen, I've seen the Black Panther movie like twice now. Uh, and I think one of the things that I see every time is, the movie almost it's a fantasy, obviously, but it, it, it speaks to a deeper hope uh, in the African that we can actually advance technologically and retain our cultural cultural values very, very strongly. Uh, and you see that played out there. So I, I, I would hazard that that's, that's why it resonated with you. That's why it resonated with David the Ghanaian who, who grew up in the UK and a whole lot of, a whole lot of other people because it's, it's really who we are. 
So now you, I mean, you allude to another thing that I found fascinating. You have a chapter on the digital village or the emergence of the quote unquote digital village. You know, before I talk about like why that sort of not bowled me over and how it affirmed some of the plans we have even here at the African Tech Roundup as a platform, you know, we didn't realize we we're building a village or in fact we did, but we didn't. You know what I mean? This, it, we were doing things intuitively or true to, um, true to being who we were. Uh, part of why I co-founded this podcast was the frustration around oversimplification around the the digital transformation narrative that was you know that was unfolding around the continent and there's oversimplification there's there's hype mongering there's you know sometimes well meaning i have to admit um there's sometimes out and out misinformation and then there's a a lack of perhaps sensitivity to some of the more political political underlining issues that are being defined by the technological uh, you know, developments we're starting to see or should be seeing and the actors involved in, in, in bringing them to fruition. And so I want you to comment within the context of the book you've written, what you make of how the African villager ought to be asserting within the context of everything you see. And I know, given that I'm speaking to an, uh, to an agency head, you, you know more than I, what's at stake perhaps, even in political, economic, or, or other terms. I, th- I, th- I think, uh, if I may be so bold to say, the oversimplification is coming from a degree of laziness. Uh, I think people just, they don't just want to do the work. Uh, and they think, if I simplify, I'll get enough of it right. And if the others go wrong, it's fine. Uh, but you're right, the issues are way more complex than that. At the heart of it, the, the role of technology is as an enabler. Technology is, to a large extent, not a, transform, is not a transformer. It enables, you know, you, you express more of who you are and, and what you are as, uh, you, you know, with, with, with technology. I mean, the economists conducted um, a research recently, which, I mean, I saw the research after the book was published. I'm like, oh, no, I should have put this in the book. <laughs> you know, and, and... So how often do you get that feeling, though? Uh, quite a lot nowadays. I'm like, oh, Tracy, can we? <laughs> Don't worry, you'll get a reprint. I'm sure. <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope so. Updated edition. You already have a pre-order with me, so <laughs> okay, that's that. You need to work on the rest of the maybe millions of, of readers, but at least you've got one book sold. <laughs> Go on book sold. I'll have to do the work for the rest, you know. Um, um, and and the, the the research wanted to look at the issue of whether technological exposure would affect culture. And so what they did was they were looking for, they targeted young people between the ages of 18 to 20 who were very active on social media and they wanted to check their cultural flexibility levels. And they found that uh, uh, African uh, youths, in particular, Nigeria was what caught my eye, were the most culturally inflexible in the world. Even though they were very active on social media, they found that some of the ancient shall I put values, uh, cultural values of life and all of that, were still held on very strongly by these people. The issues of shame came up. If you, if you look at the data, we saw young people 18 to 20 talking about how, it's, how they don't believe in, in premarital uh, 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 childbirth because of the embarrassment they would have to face in 2018. 
you can imagine and so so you would think that because they're so exposed they're, they're young generation they're doing stuff that you know they'll just be flexible with their culture no they were not they, they you know they were not and 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 that's 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 part of the complexity that businesses and and even governments have to deal with that we have this new generation that's technologically empowered that's doing stuff they are creating technology-based businesses and all of that but they've still got very strong values that resonate across generations and they will still like a role to play in defining the narrative of of their countries i uh, know and, and that that they have to live with that paradox and move away from this oversimplified idea that if if a generation is technologically advanced that means they are culturally imbalanced or something or if a generation is culturally rooted that means they, they, they cannot be technologically advanced it's it's simply not true it's simply not true you know as you were speaking it's just uh you you connected a dot for me it just occurred to me that a lot of the foreign aid or you know the the sort of ngo funding that flows into the continent for all sorts of reasons not least to to you know promote quote-unquote progress or uh enlightenment is values-based. And I think as Africans, we sense it whenever progress is sold to us on the premise of um, a value that we don't actually hold or embrace or, or used by the, the funder to almost try and impose values uh, through sort of economic means. I don't know that commercial interests are quite as aware of that dynamic as perhaps they ought to be. And perhaps they'd, they'd frame their attempts or their overtures to quote-unquote help the continent or, you know, impact the continent differently if they, if they did. Yeah, I, I think it's the issue you're identifying. It's also the same issue with the whole uh, um, foreign policy of, of countries like the U.S., uh, that, you know, go out to help countries at, uh, with civil war, the Syrias, the Libyas of this world. Uh, but behind that, they want to make those countries democracies, you know. And sometimes I look at the news and I'm like, just stop the war. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything about their form of government, you know, uh, or their culture, or their way of life. People should not be fighting and killing each other. Simple. It's the same thing. If you come to an African country, you want to give aid and whatever, just give the aid. Simple. Leave the culture be because, because the culture is what defines them. Is how they are find their, find their way through life, and they may be going through. They may need some supports. You know that's fine. Uh, and I think you're right. <clears throat> when when people see that the the aid is being is being either given as a cover for or as given as an integral part of some values transmission, uh, it becomes rejected because it almost implies on the back of that that it is because of the values you have that's why you are in a position where you have need of aid. And that is actually not, not true. You know, uh, it's the same way that the West looks at, uh, 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 once they come into a country and they see that the infrastructural development is low, they then say that the country is not sophisticated, the people there, you know, there's this superiority complex that comes in. You know, and I always reject that and say, westernization is not the same thing as sophistication. You know, you can be highly sophisticated and not necessarily be westernized, you know. So I, I think that's, that's somehow, I mean, to the countries out there giving aid or foundations and so on, you know, excellent work, fantastic work, but give the aid and spend more time understanding the people's culture before you try and change it, you know. Don't, don't, make, the, don't make the cultural change or adjustment an integral part of, of the aid that, that, that you're there to give.
Look, I'm unashamedly team foreign aid must fall. Um, so I just, I need to put that out there. And, and, and the reason for that is I feel like we have enough to trade on in terms of value assignment and value exchange that we all agree on, i.e., I have something you need. It's worth X. <laughs> so pay me X and let's exchange this value. I did feel uncomfortable in places reading your book, if I'm honest, because it almost felt like, yo, yo, um, he's letting, he's letting them, quote unquote, them into our psyche. And I mean, you're in the business of influence and, and commercial strategy for brands that frankly are in the continent. Many of them international are on the continent to, without using this word derogatorily, are here to exploit the commercial potential of the continent. So in your mind, writing this book, knowing how much of yourself you'd put into it, really like how much of an advantage you would offer the, the reader who may or may not use this, this information integrously. Like, did you have any internal dialogue around these issues? Yeah, I, I, I did. I mean, not, not the way you framed it, but I did think about that quite a lot. Uh, but I went ahead because I found out that even Africans didn't know themselves as much as, as they should. And I think one of the reasons you, there's a thread that runs through the book, which I never quite, uh, tee up. Uh, and, and that's this whole idea that there's no culture that is inferior or superior. Culture is, it just is. You know, and one of the reasons I, I, I maintain that tone of voice throughout it's because I found out that Africans, and I'm, 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 I'm sad to say this, Nigerians, my country, have what I call national low self-esteem. We think that our values and our way of life is actually inferior. And so we're quite eager to, to quickly embrace Western values whenever we see them, however we see them. And those things aren't working for us. I had a conversation with someone uh, a couple of weeks ago, just before I came to Cape Town, and he was asking me that, do you think that our culture uh, is the reason why there's corruption on the continent? And I said, no, that's not true. Because in our culture, if you look at the village setting, a king is measured by how prosperous the, 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 the city or the village is, not by how prosperous he is personally. So you see that the, the value of kingship uh, in rural Africa talks about you know, positive externality. But then we have this issue with leaders all across the continent who are enriching themselves but impoverishing the countries that they're leading over. Now, is that happening because the Africans know? If they embrace the African values stronger, you know, uh, and we have presidents behaving like kings of old, they will actually have countries developing, not vice versa. So I, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's good to let businesses know because we do need businesses to succeed on the continent. If you look at the population boom that's coming and the fact that 20, 30 years from now, this continent will be the most populous continent in the world with 54% of the population of the planet here. That is either going to be a blessing or a curse depending on whether we have enough businesses to absorb that man manpower. Because if it doesn't absorb them, it's going to create real problems uh, on an economic scale that we cannot even begin to to imagine so for me it's important for me that businesses succeed uh, on the continent particularly homegrown businesses i think africa is ripe to have a multinational business there is nothing stopping an african business from becoming a multinational business absolutely nothing we just need to think differently we need to embrace the correct management principles 
and we need to be happy being africans you know and, and we'll do but we need to do it we need to in we have just 30 years and 30 years is a very short time it's a very very short time listening to you i'm curious about your immediate family's response to to the book um i've often said if i had to write a book similar or uh, you know revealing probably nearly as much as you did in your book i'd probably i don't know if, i don't know if i could do it um until i'm probably old and gray and i don't know so give me he's laughing <laughs> you know that 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 is well i th- i think i think um you know, I, I wrote the book the same way I speak, and uh, I'm very anecdotal in my in my in my presentation style. So I think uh, my my family have gotten used to that. I do try to to draw some lines uh, as as often as I can. Uh, but I mean, my wife read the book. She read the manuscript, gave some valuable feedback. Uh, um, Did she take stuff out? Yes, actually, <laughs> some some stuff left the book and and uh, and we uh, and uh, you know some I had to rewrite so that uh, but she gave incredible incredible uh, feedback um, and she she read the book when it was published. She bought the very first copy uh, when it landed in Nigeria. She was like, I have to buy it. And I said, No, I'm giving you a free copy. Said no, and she made this quote. She said, Business thrives when friends and family pay money. I'm buying the first copy, and she did. I was I was quite encouraged and, and touched by that. So uh, thank God for good women. <laughs> Good wives. Thank God for good wives. Thank God for good wives. So, uh, um, so I think they, they, they're comfortable with it. They, they, um, um, there weren't too many lines crossed. Uh, and I think also being anecdotal, uh, uh, was also important so that, um, people can relate with it. They can see that, um, also it's our way, isn't it? When I say our way, I mean, it's the African way. Like, how else do you, how else do you teach a lesson if not by a story? Yeah, well, Africans are storytellers. We are storytellers, you know, and um, that's our way of being. Uh, it's not a stiff. It's not meant to be a stiff academic kind of kind of thing. Uh, uh, it's a book written by an African for Africans. And to your credit, really, that's how I found it quite disarming. Um, I, I tend to be a book snob, and, a, and <laughs> I don't know why, since I've never written one. <laughs> Okay, that's that's totally fine. <laughs> Let's do the masters first. Uh, but yeah, I tend to be a book snob, and and that's I, I think when I when I emailed you um, after I read the book, I said I found it quite disarming in in that sense, and perhaps again because it's how we speak. Yeah, it's 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 our way of talking. It's our way of it's, it's stories. Is I mean I, I I everything that my my father has ever taught me, he taught me with a story. Or a proverb, all the, the important lessons he's taught me in life. I mean, it's just, and when I relate, relate, when I think of those, I just laugh. I'm like, okay, this is what you were saying. You could have said it <laughs> straight, but I'm like, ah, I probably would have remembered it the way I do. You know, it, it's like a brand in our soul, really. So, um, I'd like to close with just sharing how, you know, reading the book has somehow affirmed some of the thinking we have here at the African Tech Roundup. Um, We've grown into an international village. We didn't realize we're building one. At this point, two-thirds of our audience resides outside the continent. And we are now, for many, outside as a window into the the emerging tech and digital narrative on the African continent. Um, For for others, where they come home. Like, the African Tech Roundup lets people who are inclined to, to follow and participate and meaningfully contribute within the space of emerging tech and innovation on the continent where their village we, they come home to us as often as they possibly can 
and that was profoundly um, impactful to 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 our thinking as a team. Yeah, I, I think that's 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 uh, that's nice to hear, and that is so true because um, you know the, the it's two thirds of your listeners outside. Sometimes I'm sure they will wonder who they are and who they should be where, where, wherever they are, and 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 the kind of work you're doing uh, gives them a platform to say this is who we are, this is how we think. Obviously, they have their reasons for being outside the continent, but even outside the continent, they 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 have to be uh, they have to be Africans in a very authentic way that uh, Africans back home won't say, "Oh, you're you're not exactly African," you know uh, that sort of. So I think it's it's excellent stuff. And then when you think of it as well, a significant part of our audience is living on the continent. And I also realize that for them, we're a village. Also, when you consider um, the unfortunate legacy of ownership and participation in the space um we have never had a village so for some this is the only village that exists you know (laughs) a digital village really and and you know it's uh, the thing about a village is it brings it brings people closer it's it's that communal element of who we are and it's so powerful you can you know you know that saying that says it takes a village to raise a child you always know that whatever happens you can go back to the village someone will sort you out there Preach, man. <laughs> so we'll sort you out. So I mean, that's that's the that's the that's the power of the village. Uh, if you didn't grow up in one, or if you're a Westerner, you know, it's it's you, your four hundred one k, your you know, your pension, and that's it. If anything happens to you, you don't have pension, you don't have a four hundred one k or whatever. You're on your own. But in Africa, you're just like, ah, if, if it goes bad, I'll just go. If I walk into the village and shout, someone will come to, come and help me. You know? And and that I, I think that's what one beautiful thing that we must never lose, really. Absolutely. In closing, um, you you again speak to the very African way in which the village must be experienced tangibly. Like when we were thinking about like taking our podcast, our live you know event concept on tour and around the world, as we're now as we're now uh, you know preparing to do. I mean, we didn't think of it in that way, but of course, it makes all the sense in the world, especially when you consider that prior to us leaving the continent for the first time. We were in, 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 in the UK last year and then at Afrobytes in Paris. We, we spent a lot of time there. And it was because of that sort of tangible in-person, those touch points that we created for our villagers that the UK actually passed Kenya as our third largest, you know, listener, listener geography. And, and yet, and then you just put it so simply, like, like it's, it's been there all along. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I say that just to say, you know what I mean? If you haven't read this book, if you haven't heard about it, you've heard about it here. It's The Village of How Africans Consume Brands. And I, I'm, I'm going to try not to put your name. I'll do my very best. Faye Olubudun. Um, did I do all right? You, you did all right. You did all right, man. Uh, he's, he's one of the villagers, folks. And, and, and we're so glad to welcome him to ours. Um, but I, I guess I, I'm saying all this just to say thank you. Thank you too. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's it's a pleasure to to chat about this. And uh, yeah, I I mean my my social details are there. I'd like people to actually read the book, comment on it. You know, write me if you disagree. Let's let's chat about it. Maybe your disagreement will give me ideas for the next edition. How do people get in touch, and how how would you like them to 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 reach you with their their comments and and their contribution? The easiest place will be LinkedIn and uh, and Instagram. Uh, Twitter as well is fine. And I use everywhere I use my name as my handle, so it's, it's, it's easy to find me. Yes, and we'll be sharing all those details in the show notes, so please be sure to check it out. African Tech Roundup, thanks you once again. Thank you very much.
So the mic's back on, as we sometimes do. Um, the interview's wrapped, but then we start talking, and then we realize, my goodness, there's just too much goodness to not put it on mic. And uh, we're speaking to Faye now about some of the things he's been learning as he's been promoting the book, listening to other people basically grapple with some of the ideas he's sharing and challenge them in, in places. And there's, there's one, one area in particular that you know I, I'd like us to address by turning the mic back on. It's quite possible for people to, to read this and assume that in some way you're making value judgments about the state of African culture or, or elements of it. Is Faye saying is the, this is how it should be? You know what I mean? And how did you navigate those sort of issues in writing this book? And, and presumably there's a lot that ended up on the, on the, uh, <laughs> on the workshop floor. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the, the, the issue of, uh, of elements of our culture that, you know, perhaps I think needs to be readdressed uh, as, as uh, chatting just now that in the old days when we had proper villages functioning, we'd have had the village elders sit down and say, you know, uh, we need to relook this element. And one of the, one, one that was quite a bit of a challenge to, to write about in the book without coming across, um, uh, as making value judgments was, was the role of women, the evolving role of women. We see now that in Africa, more and more women are emerging. They are in the middle class. They are more, they're becoming more empowered. Uh, and, and that's a great thing to have. Uh, but you know, the natural consequence of that, if a woman goes to get higher education, uh, uh, a BSc and MSc goes into the workforce, pursues her career, one, one natural implication of that is, She's going to get married later than her, perhaps her mother did. My, my mom didn't get uh, a university education. She she had teacher training school and she 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 went for that after she's had us as kids. Oh, so we have that in common, by the way. Both our mothers went for teacher training, and my mother only did her first degree uh, in her late forties. Imagine, imagine that. Now you you won't find that in 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 our generation anymore. You know, and what what then happens is that. Women might tend to marry later than 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 the previous generation, but society is still yet to adjust the expectation on women getting married. So so you 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 will still have a whole bunch of women that are in their early thirties or late twenties who aren't married yet, and society places some level of judgment on them uh, 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 as if as if they've done something wrong. But it's not true. They just went to get education. So that they can add value to society, and and that's the natural consequence of uh, of of doing that. That would naturally happen. Interestingly, the same thing is happening to the men as well, uh, because in our father's time, men would have would have, would be married with kids by the time they are thirty. Because then, what did a man have to do? It was an agrarian culture. You had your farm by the time you were in your early twenties. You had your farm. If your farm was prosperous enough, you had enough to feed a family. You were expected to get married now. The average age for men getting married on the continent is between 30 to 40 because you, you get an education, you want to build your career before you get to the same level of economic empowerment to raise a family. You've done a bit, but no one is judging the men uh, the same way society silently judges the women. And I feel that that's, that's a really unfair thing. Uh, those are some of the elements of our culture that we need to relook and say, you know, maybe we need to we need to move this around and actually encourage the women uh, instead of discouraging them for for being economically empowered. And I suppose just in response to what you're saying now, it, it harkens back to something you said that culture just is, you know. And holding that tone throughout your book must have been really difficult because, uh, as Africans, 
at least I think of myself as certainly quite typical in the sense that I feel quite entitled to my, <laughs> to my perspective and worldview and, and frankly, my value judgment of most things. Um, I just like to think that I'm, I'm quite perhaps less African in the sense that I'm willing to have my mind shifted on new information or, uh, once I'm, you know, a convincing argument is reached. So how do you, how do you grapple with that as a, as someone trying to tell our story or tell your story or stay true, but also remain pragmatic? I, I, I think for me, the challenge was uh, remaining as much of an observer while being a part of the village as much as I could while during the process of writing to just, you know, try and say, okay, if, if I were just observing without any judgment, what am I seeing? You know, uh, and then uh, sometimes I then have to go back in and say, okay, I was part of this to some degree or, or, or not. Um, and and um, I struggled to, I endeavored to take that perspective because it was important for me for the readers to to see african culture as what it is uh without necessarily casting uh any any uh any judgment on it without saying it is good or bad or anything this is just what it is you know just see it for what it is and then learn to relate with it right and here's one question that i totally forgot to ask you and i have to because you are <laughs> now the team was going to like murder me for not asking this question um, and you'll understand why in, in in the coming months perhaps but um agency is being disrupted the notion of agency um creative whether you consider the consulting business at large as agency on some level or even wpp struggling to put you know decent scores on the board you know being the biggest uh you know advertising sort of group in the world right now um give me a sense of how you're responding to that as an agency head? How are you responding to all these changes? And in your particular context, being in a in an emerging market where you know we are, you know, behind the curve in some respect, in many respects, relative to the developed world, and in many respects, I mean, how how are you thinking about this over at uh, Publicis? Well, I mean, what what I mean, globally, you're saying that Publicis is is investing a lot in technology to try and you know jump ahead of the curve. What we've experienced in, in the Nigerian market is, is, is a dual movement, uh, kind of. On one hand, we find that it's, it's, we found it's important to continue to strengthen our core creative offering because in spite of the rate of technology adoption, uh, there's still the very deeply ingrained cultural values of the society. And also, more importantly, you still have a, a large part of the population living in the rural area who aren't as technologically empowered as everyone else. So you still have to strengthen the core creative offering in order to engage those people. But we've also found that at the same time, we need to, we needed to become more digitally oriented, uh, or, or, or capable as a business, particularly in the area of, of content, uh, for mobile. Because as we said earlier, you know, Africa is a storytelling continent and the rate of content consumption, particularly video, video content, uh, in, in, in countries like Nigeria, Kenya is incredible. You find that the average consumer cons spends on average of about two hours cumulatively every day consuming video content on the internet. And you know, that's because, you know, you do it in bits and pieces. Uh, if someone were to ask you today to, spend two hours of your day every day sitting down and watching traditional TV or watching a movie, you probably like, ah, I've got too much to do. But if you look at every one minute you spend on Instagram every now and then or Facebook or whatever, you accumulate it comes about two hours or so per day. Now, if you have that going on, you've got to change how you engage 
uh, 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 the, 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 that kind of population. So we have that dual movement going on. Uh, and, and the past couple of years, the agency has been doing a lot of uh, reformatting and reinventing of itself to become more capable in what we now call a, a post-digital world. And so does this mean that uh, companies are now inviting you to strategy tables in ways that perhaps they didn't before? And if so, um, where does that leave tr- the you know, traditional consultancies and, and, and this notion that you know, consulting or agency needs to be delivered in, in silos? Well, I, I think agencies aren't back in the boardroom yet. Uh, everyone wants to go back there, but we're not back there yet. The consultants still have a bigger opportunity to to enter the boardroom than we do, and and that's because by by design, most consulting services are engaged by C level, uh, the CEOs or the CFO or the CIO and so on. Typically, agency services are not engaged by that level of seniority. It's usually the most senior person you typically have is the CMO, you know, and then you have marketing managers and so on. Uh, and I think that 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 small difference uh, is making it a bit harder for us to 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 get back into the boardroom. I think it'll take a while, realistically. And for me, I'm 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 sort of delaying uh, my conclusions on the matter to see how the consultants the consultancies land well in an agency world, and how the agencies also uh dabbling in your space yeah yeah so I, i'm i'm watching i'm watching for that and then you need to read the book to understand why that whole c suite piece is a big deal especially on the continent <laughs> right so again uh, another good reason to get the book thanks for coming on the mic again thank you so much appreciate it